Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce you on behalf of WCBN FM and Arbor, some of the finest musical acts of our time. Rudy. Mr. Daddy Knight, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, James Brown and the famous Flint. The Ike and Tina Turner review. Also featuring Bo Diddley, Marvin Gaye, the Ronettes, the Birds, Ray Charles, and so many more. Wednesday, October 14th at Harbor Brewing Company at 9 p.m. It's a WCBN double feature with The Tammy Show and The Big TNT Show. Don't forget, it's free. Summer turns to fall Don't you know Some people say
approaching slowly at a glance. Here comes the shadow of his stance. The rains are falling from his hand. Why do you ride that crazy horse? Inquires the shadow. Just then a priest comes down the stairs With a sack of dreams and old said to the first 
Head back to the clouds, we're dying of thirst. There's not enough time to make that call. Let's ditch this rider's shadow.
Got the deep sea Nixon's vision of peace and global unity alive with sounds and music from all the cultures of all the people all over the world. If you hear uh, like you think the ones of, what do you call it, music at the restaurants or on the elevators? That music is destructive. That music, if we had good music playing for people in a happy society on the streets, you know, I feel like uh, my music, uh, I have a new record coming out. I was like, well, maybe this time they'll hear it. As Christopher Knight and the Brady Bunch, all of my problems was television. 
I'm Peter. In real life, I struggled with attention deficit disorder, but that were solved in 30 minutes. To learn more about ADD, visit the National Consumers League website at www.nclnet.org. listeners this is dj blackout i just hosted the last show radio blackout it's 4:33, and it's time for living writers this week we will be playing a pre-recorded show featuring poet emily warren so please sit back and enjoy and thank you for listening to wcbn fm and our Listening to Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Emily Warren here in the studio. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> We're taping this Friday, the 11th of September, 2009. Emily is in town, um, and she's got her her latest book with her from Copper Canyon Press. Our good friends, Shadow Architect, the name of the book, and we're going to be hearing some poems from that, maybe from the Leaf Path, and some new work. Too. That's right. And, and just to kick off, I'll read your short bio. Emily Warren is the author of two previous books of poems available from Copper Canyon Press. She grew up in Michigan and was educated at Kalamazoo College, the University of Washington, and Stanford University. Her essays and poems appear in Poetry, Parabola, The Seattle Times, The Kenyon Review, Blackbird, Book Forum, The Bloomsbury Review, and The Writer's Almanac. She lives in Seattle and Chicago, where she is the Webby Award-winning editor for PoetryFoundation.org. Actually, you, are you living in Twisp now? Uh, right. you, maybe we'll, right. we'll edit that as we, right? Let's start by doing that. Okay, <laughs> edit my own biography. I like that. Uh, no, I left the foundation last January um, uh, and moved back home to Seattle, and I also have a cabin in the mountains in Twisp, Washington, so I go back and forth over the Cascades. Oh, well, oh, so it's in the Cascades. I was going to ask if you were out on the peninsula in the Olympics, but it's the Cascades. It's the Cascades, eastern slope of the Cascades. And and so you were actually born out west in San Francisco, but then your family moved to Detroit um, when you were very young. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, um, this last weekend I had the chance to read at Woodland Pattern in Milwaukee. And I don't know if you know about Woodland Pattern. Woodland Pattern is this wonderful bookstore but it's also a literary organization actually similar to Richard Hugo House in Seattle and uh, it's been around 30 years it's a nonprofit, but it sells small press titles and 
uh, it's there's an incredible poetry community in Milwaukee. So they invited me along with Don Cher, the senior editor of Poetry Magazine, and we gave a reading last Saturday. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I hadn't been back to Milwaukee uh, since I was six years old. And when I was six, uh, my mother put us in a car, and that was we had been living in Berkeley and Marin, a kind of more bohemian, secular life. And uh, and my father had left, so she was tr- struggling to raise three kids as a single mom in the early 60s. And she decided to move back to Detroit to be with her family. So she put us in a car, and we drove across the country, and we got to Milwaukee. And in Milwaukee, we got on one of those giant old car ferries with a shuffleboard deck. And I realized that at that point, I had never heard the word yarmulke or Hanukkah or God even. So it was, there I was standing on the shores of Lake Michigan uh, again, and I had been reading Robert Duncan's essay, The Truth and Life of Myth of a Poet. Oh, and this is just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, this is, flash forward. Yeah, yeah, flash forward. And, And in that essay, he says, the surety of the myth for the poet has such force that it operates as a primary reality in itself, having volition. So I was there in Milwaukee, um, standing on the shore of Lake uh, Michigan just a week ago, thinking how that passageway across the lake was pre-immersion into Judaism. Because then we got off in Muskegon, drove to Oak Park. I inherited aunts and uncles and cousins, and her parents were Orthodox Jews. So, And then I grew up in the Jewish community. And what a what a um, and that uh, what a strange phenomenon at six years old to have that happen. Mm-hmm. And 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 it seems like you were aware of that, like some huge shift, or or is it just in the looking back? I think in the reflection, just, the reflecting think, on it. I think it's just the looking back. I I was turned seven that summer, and we drove up to my grandparents' suburban house in Oak Park, which at that point was very newly built, and began a new life. And and uh, I. You know, we went to Hebrew school. I fell in love with Torah and ritual and for no reason. I mean, and, and so that's... Was it the beauty of the words? Because you say for no reason, but what, if you think about it now, what do you, what do you think? Oh, I, I think it is about the language. And, and the mystery. And the mystery. And just the reverence for words and, and, and the sense of the tradition never um, ending. In other words, that in, in studying... Uh, Torah and Talmud, you're constantly looking at gaps and conundrums, and in and that's what it is to be Jewish. Really, is to look at those questions and then construct a narrative to answer them. So it's very whimsical and wild and fantastical tradition, as well as being then the most resonant become laws, become codes that or ways of living that get passed down. But then it's constantly being broke open because there's. Human beings never tire of asking questions. And are you saying those questions exist for everyone to look at, and then you try to fill in the answers, and that's what it means to be in the Jewish tradition? That's what it means to you. No, it's not what it means to me. It's that is that is how you study Torah and Talmud. You look for the question, and you often are looking for the question that the commentary that the rabbis and sages who are the the commentators answered. So you'll read, say, the opening passage of Exodus where um, Miriam is standing off looking uh, at the at the Pharaoh's 
daughter putting, you know, discovering it. And and then there's this long passage by a famous commentator named Rashi. And the first thing you do is, what is the question he was asked? Is he answering in his commentary? And and you include some of those passages in your book, Shadow Architect, don't you? On well, some these of the are my own. These are my own answers to those questions, and of, oftentimes, but not always. Some of the poems are, and and, and some and some of the poems then have. Um, uh, they have you have quotes proof texts right, proof, right oh so and that's what I meant by you included some pieces of those by right. maybe even was it Rushi did you Rashi say? Rashi yeah and so right and so the idea is that so you offer your answer to a question or you pose a new question and then as proof that your answer is valid you offer a proof text would you like me to read a poem to let that would yeah. be wonderful Emily and okay. and you even use William Blake is uh, some yeah, of William your Blake is your proof text. your experts. <laughs> Um, I, my my niece Lara had her bat mitzvah last year, oh. so it was it was lovely to see her actually uh, how she was interacting with uh, the the Torah itself and and carrying it and oh isn't that thing. wonderful it is yeah to yes. be have the, the words being passed down yes and and that's why you mentioned Blake let me let me read the quote from him I think that uh, the process of studying Torah or the tradition of it is a poetic tradition. Um, and this is what Blake had to say about the relationship between God and poets. <laughs> we of Israel taught that the poetic genius, as you now call it, was the first principle and all the others merely derivative, which was the cause of our despising the priests and philosophers of other countries and prophesying that all gods would be at last proved to originate on ours in ours and to be the tributaries of the poetic genius. It was this that our great poet King David desired so fervently and invoked so pathetically. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, isn't that great? So this poem called Rainmaker um, is about Miriam, who was just, um, you know, the, a kind of almost female divine persona in that she embodied this joy in life and the joys of ordinary life and um the here in numbers i was taught as a child in hebrew school that the reason moses couldn't enter the holy land was because he struck the rock Do you oh, remember? And it, it was in the striking that was the problem yeah the, that was the, the problem essence of the right what, what was he supposed to do, do you think, with a rock? He was supposed to just um, believe, believe oh, right, wait for God. So um, so that's what I had in my mind. It's very much like reader response criticism where when you're reading these old texts, you, what you're actually reading is what you've been taught they mean. And so you need to read them. You need to first discard what you've been taught they mean. And that's pretty much often what you're doing, as well as looking at the commentators. So, so I went in numbers. It says the Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zin on the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The community was without water, and they joined against Moses and Aaron. So I read that. And all I could think about is the the grief of this community at losing Miriam and that uh, being linked to them running out of water. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so this poem is called Rainmaker. What they can count on are stones, a couple of creosote bushes, sheep bawling, 
bickering children and priests, blisters and Miriam dead. Her Kaddish and her days of Shiva chanted, their clothes rent. They have charred wood, scouts returning with empty gourds. No figs, no grain, no pomegranates, no vines, and no water. At dawn, the hills turn pink, glare. At night, stars hang too close with no moon, no Miriam, lost radiance. The people congregate, they smoke and point from coal to constellation, from dying ember to dying ember. The flying sparks etch mother fading to memory on the night sky. To be on the move with her, to jettison Moses in the tent, memorizing 32 paths of wisdom and 50 gates of understanding. Whom will they run to, legs flying over stones and grass? Who will stroke their hair? Moses beats the rock with his hand. What do they know? Miriam watched over me. He flails his rod against the rock until a channel opens for his tears. They weep, and he weeps some more. Then they drink, and the beasts drink. Thank you, Emily. We'll, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Emily Warren and her latest book, Shadow Architect. We'll be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Emily Warren is here. Her book, Shadow Architect. Emily, you just read us a, a poem. What was the what was the name of that, the title of the poem? Again? The poem, the name of it is um, Rainmaker. Rainmaker. And it's about the, it's the letter Vav in the book. And it's, it's a wonderful book. I wish we could show some of the visuals here because there's, um, you have the, the, the actual Hebrew text from the Torah, and then um, a person that you were collaborating with also made images. Right, you- right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So this book is called Shadow Architect, and it originated in this collaboration with a wonderful Pacific Northwest visual artist named Dennis Evans, who happens to be a Jesuit um, and has always been fascinated with letters and symbols, and his work is amazing. Um, and so we collaborated on the... On, on an exhibition, and the idea behind the exhibition was that his pieces, which are multimedia, they're actually beeswax that's been dyed and fired and and painted on and all these objects on it, um, were the 22 kits. And if you had, and there were 22 kits, one kit for each letter. And my poems we conceived of as manuals. 
So if you had the kits and the poems, you could invent a universe. And this sounds a bit outlandish, but it's very much in the tradition of the Hebrew alphabet. And, the, and for, year, for centuries, actually, the Hebrew alphabet has been thought to have creative generative powers, that each letter has creative generative powers, um, so that if you learned how to manipulate the letters, you could experience the divine, you could um, raise someone from the dead, you could even create a golem, a human being. So th- that those are the legends about the letters. But the source of the legends is really um, Genesis, where God speaks or God utters the universe into being. He's let there be light, and there was light. So the book is really a wrestling and an investigation or exploration of how the material creates the immaterial and how the immaterial creates the material. So to give you a sense small of the, potatoes there, yeah, Emily. Small potatoes, right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I should just write about my childhood, huh? <laughs> uh, to give you an example of that, so this is called Seeding an Alphabet, and it's the very first letter, Aleph. Um, so seeding an alphabet to invent the olive bait decipher the grammar of crows read a tangle of bare branches with fowls of the last leaves scrawling their jittery speech on the sky's pale page choose a beginning see what God yields and dirt seeds when tines disturb fescue vetch and sage when your hand dips grain from a sack, scattering it among engraved furrows. Beyond the hill, a plume of dust where oxen track the hours. Does God lead or follow or scout? To answer, count to one again and again, a red maple leaf and a yellow maple leaf that wind rifles and rain shines until they let go, blazing their scripted nothingness on air. I love that one. Um, there's there's a quality to these these poems in, in the book, uh, Emily, that I've read. Um, that there's a, there's a certain calmness, um, and not something that's like a settled because there is like there's still like a because there's the questions that you've mm-hmm. already t- spoken to us about. Um, b- but from reading some of the poems in the Leaf Path, your your first poetry collection that Copper mm-hmm. Canyon um, published um, there's there's such there, there's a there's a there's a seeking that is completely unsettled mm-hmm. in that book where mm-hmm. there's something different about this voice where mm-hmm. there's a calmness in the, mm-hmm. the presence even if all it's as if it's it's the acceptance of the questions and that that's just the part of mm-hmm. the way it is mm-hmm. is that did, did that does that sound true is that after or do you think that that's I think that's true. I would hope that that as one matures, one acquires greater equanimity. And I think that's true that if you have some kind of um, passion, whether it's poetry or or religion or or children or whatever it is that you're passionate about. Um, that you you develop over time a certain faith that you'll you'll realize uh something new you know it, it, so it's and i think that's what poems kind of are they're kind of these resolutions of almost psycho linguistic religious tensions 
And it's always been that way for you. It's always been that way. Just an entwined, the language, the spirituality. Right. It's always been that way. But for this book, so there are 22 letters. Each letter has four parts. Each poem about the letter has four parts. That's a pretty big undertaking. And I wrote it over four years. And you can't write poetry on command. And so perhaps the quiet is just over time these poems would happen. So, for instance, that Miriam poem, I I knew I needed a a poem that was about a descent into darkness. and Because uh, that was the letter that that we were on. We constructed a journey. We didn't just have the 22 kits, but the the actual, the alphabet, the the book is two spiritual journeys. So Aleph is setting out. And if you look at the Aleph, I'm showing it to you here in the studio, it looks like a yoke. And the poem is called The Yoke of Heaven. So we're shouldering the task of being an artist or being a seeker. And that's, so seeding an alphabet is the first poem. Bait, and maybe I can use the bait to explain the structure of the book. Would that be helpful? Um, So bait uh, is the, well, let me back up a second. So the, 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 the structure of the poems is not based on this, something I invented. It's actually based on mystic Judaism. So the Baal Shem Tov, which means, in Hebrew, master of the good name, I love that name, was the founder of Hasidism. And and he had a vision. And it's so it's such a perfect Jewish vision because instead of seeing a chariot or a face with a sun, he saw letters. He had a vision about these letters that were ascending and descending and um and he it all came to him, who knows, in some timeless fashion, but that each letter had creative power. And that it had that there were three parts of that creative power. One related to the world, which is its shape, and so and that so the bait. I'm going to turn my page book here. The bait looks like an open tent door. So it's similar to some Chinese ideograms, not all Chinese ideograms, but, but some so similar, so yeah, resonant, yes. very similar that the shape actually looks like a form in the world, and so it looks like an open tent door. Its name. So every Hebrew letter has a name. So imagine if B had a name. (laughs) Its name is house. And that relates to the level of the soul. Its name, it relates to its soul level. So in our book, the second poem, or my book, the second poem was a a lyric, a narrative that's about its name. And in this case, in the journey, it was you set out, then you build a dwelling place for spirit or inspiration. And then Gimel, you meet your teacher. Dalit is a doorway. You're initiated you know, after you meet the teacher, hey is giving expression, is the kid a language, and on it goes throughout the book. But it's not a very obvious narrative. It's I, We haven't told anyone the whole narrative, but it's there. Um, and and then the third level of the letter is it's it's number. So all Hebrew letters are also numbers. And and that's because the narrative isn't what is foremost in, in what the intention of the the poems are, Emily, right? It's something that that's there, and it's one of the layers, and it's something that can make a, an understanding of the chronology of things, right? But that's, that's exactly main... right. No, the main thing is is writing a poem about that letter. And so it's loosely part of a narrative, but uh, I don't, yeah, it's it's about, it's it's me providing my interpretation in a poetic way about the letter. So we created an architecture but the narrative is, and, and it's very much about the narrative, but it isn't, I set out, I did this, I did that. It's, okay, how do I write a poem about infinity, which is the yud, you know? 
And I sometimes I'd live with the letter for months, even years, and 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 I'd write maybe five poems, and for every one that's in this book, until I I knew I had interpreted that letter right. Or it's not so much interpreted because I think that in a way when you write to make meaning, you destroy the meaning. I I I really think that poetry is more a presentation or a po- making a poem that it seems living, making words live as much as possible. So that's what I mean. It's, it's okay, if each of these letters has generative power, then how do you create a poem that feels alive? And so some, so, and there is a calmness in this book. I think my new poems are much more agitated. I've gone back to being, a, uh, you know, because I'm working in a kind of faith tradition here at the same time as I'm working in the poetic tradition. And I think I've also let go a little bit of closure in my work. Um, so, what, what do you mean by that? Um, I think just what I'm saying is that when you try too hard to mean something, you often deplete it of its vitality. And that's and that's what you mean by having some sort of closure with the right. poems themselves. Right. I feel that when you close a poem too much, what you're saying is, "Aha! Here's the meaning." <laughs> yeah. And and then 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 that's the meaning. Then other people don't get to, you know, what the idea would be that you would create. That's what's so wonderful to me about Judaism. On one level, I do think it is almost an aesthetic system. And so what you're doing is you're offering your uh, your these poems as part of this longer system with multiple authors. And you know, it's as if we're all writing one book, like Chavez talks about Edmund Chavez. Um, and I think you actually could. Could I? Yeah, yeah. There, there is a poem that I, uh, in here, Emily, that I think of yours, where you talk about the. Um, I think that, like, somehow, this continuum here. I don't know if if that, um, right? Like the 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 points on a line that right. each of us are, and so it's as if this is your moment, and you're not reckoning because that sounds final as well but something your moment in the faith and i wonder if you weren't a poet by what you've made of your life so far i wonder how because this seems like something you would have necessary to you in your just your path as a person Mm -hmm. with faith right so it's interesting to think i mean if you hadn't been a poet already would this have still been something that you would have somehow made i guess there's no way to answer that. well that's a really interesting (laughs) question um, because I think there is a difference between poetry and art and religion. And, right, and I think I had, it's easy to confuse them. I mean, you, I don't know if you read Bloom's introduction to the American, uh, American religious poetry in which he claims Walt Whitman is God and essentially, <laughs> and that, that, <laughs> that American that there's an American religion. All right. So kind of linking that to humanism, like uh, linking sort of, well, or, or, actually linking it to to Dickinson and Whitman that they, you know, that that they are, yeah. are not just our saints, but our our right. godheads. Okay. Our godheads. Anyway, <laughs> but we're getting too far away. But just in a very explicit way, I'm part of a Talmud study group, which I love, and the the whole idea is that you you don't you don't learn. You don't study Talmud in order to make a poem or in order to be famous or in order to... So I think holiness, in a way, is an encounter that can't be put to use. 
I think that's Abraham Heschel's definition. And poetry is very much the same, but in a way you need to honor a religious tradition, um, meaning that you do it just for purely, um, you know, pure reasons of learning. Whereas poetry, you're always trying to make something. You're always trying to, you know, when you're not, you're completely depressed and think it's something else or blame it on something else. But, you know, all it is is when you're not making, you're not happy. And in religion, what you're doing is it's a it's a more communal activity. You're, it's social. It's You're there to, 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 to exp- people come together to worship or to study. Um, and... And it's a whole other experience that is intrinsic in itself. Poetry has an intrinsic pleasure and religion has an intrinsic pleasure. And and sometimes you can mix them up in ways that don't respect them. You know, they're, they're so. That makes sense. Yeah. And with with religion, it, it sounds, or, or spirituality, it sounds like we're, we're trying to see how we are part of the universe, like we are. Yeah. Yeah. And in poetry, we're trying to make poems that become part of the universe. Yes. So I think poetry is very much a response to the world and an initiation or an initiating of the world. That's what I think. And that's wonderful. And we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today on Living Writers, Emily Warren. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Emily Warren, her book, Shadow Architect. Um, so, Emily, we did get kind of away from e- explaining the the whole, like, the, the structure of the book. So could you take us back to it now? Sure. It, just real <laughs> briefly. So the third poem about each letter is about its number. So every letter has a number. So the bait is, um, is the number two, and each poem about the number is also is a prose poem. So in a way, it's commenting, similar to how you study Talmud and Torah, on what came before. It's commenting more abstractly, and it relates to the level of divinity. So in the case of the bait, it's the mystery of multiplicity and unity, the number two. 
So, and and so I'll just read you a brief short poem, a brief prose poem, and this is on the gimel, which you mentioned. It's it's called the Infinity Lesson, and so it's about the number three, which is it's a that number is, has incredible significance in lots of traditions. Um, so this is called the Infinity Lesson. God spoke heaven and earth into being, dividing and joining them with a sound that is no sound. With light, God struck the number one out of formlessness, counting and saying begin with this vanishing point, how adding one to one makes two, and one to two makes three, and so on. The number three locates infinity in a room we can never leave. Motion is impossible if space and time can be subdivided infinitely. Words and numbers prove we are points on a line stretching from now to when. Thank you. From now to when. Wow. Okay. Wow. It's hard to go somewhere after infinity. It's true. <laughs> but we can never leave. That's right. It's amazing. I mean, you can't count from zero to one. I mean, anyway, I have another <laughs> poem in here about the different types of infinity. Actually, the uh, famous mathematician who invented set theory, uh, who was one of those scientists way or mathematicians and thinkers way ahead of his time, and was actually became mentally ill because no one would believe him. It was based on the letter Aleph on one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do you, what was his name? Do you remember his name? Or oh, my it? gosh. Oh, it's okay. The, the... Cantor. Cantor. There's okay. a movie made about him. Oh. K-A-N-T-O-R. Oh. He's very, very famous in math. In math. Medics. Okay. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the cover of the book with the kits. Mm-hmm. Is that what you had mentioned earlier when you said that you, if you have the kits and if you have the manual, then you can create the universe? Right. So each of these, if you think of these as almost as a test, each poem or, or a, a skill you need to develop. So the, the cover is one of Dennis Evans' pieces. It's called The Sound of the Exiles, and it's the kit of spells, and that's the letter pay. And um, Why did what you he, pick this one, Emily, for the cover? What was your, your reason? Because um, the language itself is amazing with the exiles and the, the spells. Like oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> it just worked the best just the de- book designer we had several and this is the one that worked the best <laughs> so that's how it often is um but what he does is he dennis has a, a board he takes a piece of wood a board like a i think it's plywood then he takes a big chunk of beeswax it's almost like a gold cube and he lights it on fire and adds dye and then he he puts that he covers the piece of board with it and so you can see that and then he paints on it and he often plays with glass etching alphabets and numbers on glass so for instance once he created a glass vial that was uh, hand blown by an artist and cut up scraps of a prayer or i think it was hebrew prayer book and then he etched the hebrew letters around the outside lit the paper on fire and the fire cast the shadow through the other letters onto this white beeswax. This one is gold and yellow. So his his objects often look like something in the real world, so they, they're kind of referential, but they aren't exact. So it could look like a sleigh or not. It, it kind of looks like the Torah, but isn't. 
And which is like the letters themselves, mm-hmm. as you've explained it. And, yeah. and, and again, with the shadows, because you said it's a shadow, that fire made the shadow of itself. Right. And it sounds like you have a shadow narrative. You have, is, is that why you chose the idea of the shadow for the, the title of the book itself, Shadow Architect? Well, Shadow Architect is, is, um, sh- is actually relates to Bezalel in the Torah. So Bezalel is the master artist. He constructs the tabernacle. And so it's also, and so if you, the translation of Bezalel is shadow, which means to emulate God in the image of God. So God is really just the master creator as an artist. And it, so that's kind of my conception of God as a master artist. Because the, conti- the creation is continually coming into being, right? Yes. So. Yeah. It, and, and, and you studied um, for, like, you, you actually did these years of study you said four years to make this book Mm -hmm. and and were you studying before that emily and then the idea came to to work with you could you remind me of the artist's name for dennis Dennis, evans dennis evans um because i'm just wondering how it came to be because it seems very collaborative and i was wondering if you saw his pieces as he was seeing your poems or were you working together and then and then and you were studying also with different study groups and, and yeah, I was studying. I was kind of the rabbi in the project because Dennis and it's not it's it's a Jewish book, but it wasn't a Jewish exhibition. Meaning he's he's a he's a Jesuit, right? He was raised as a Jesuit. I was raised Jewish, but it's art primarily. These aren't prayers. These aren't so. It's our artistic interpretation, you know. So whereas a religious person studies the letters to maybe understand divine intention or, a, or solve an ethical problem. What we're looking at, we're studying these letters to look at the limits of language, to look at poetry, look at art. So this is very much an artistic project. It's not a religious project. Well, I don't know if I can get, <laughs> let you get away with that completely. I That's mean, probably I mean, true. As, <laughs> I mean, as it exists in the world, I can see what you, I exactly yeah. see what you mean. But I think what it might, the meaning for the, the maker, you, in yeah. that, that moment is maybe That's not true. The, it's part of my seeking. Yeah. I, I stopped being an observant Jew uh, when I was 13, when we weren't allowed to have bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, I mean. So I kind of left Judaism, and it's a long story I won't tell today. But I was teaching in Virginia and in and in the South, in southwestern Virginia. Was that Lynchburg College? Lynchburg College. And what, while I was working on this project, and there was a wonderful rabbi there named Rabbi Tom Guthertz, and he helped me study the letters. Um, and Judaism... And when was that, That was Emily? 2003 to okay. 2004. Mm-hmm. And in he... Um, in the South, Judaism represents a culture of tolerance... In a, in, you know, because in the South, really the the dominant culture is is evangelical Christianity. So in the synagogue, I, so it was the first time I re, I joined a synagogue. It's the same city that Jerry Falwell used to live in, where where his Liberty College is, and so that synagogue was incredibly important in that city, and a, a and a large number of its members were Baptists who had converted. It was really interesting. And and they were drawn there because uh, Judaism in the South is about social justice and tolerance and so it, and for me to just walk in every Friday night and to worship was a just a 
with ordinary people, not not to have you know. I mean, it was just it was just an amazing experience. So that came out of that. This a lot of this came. There's a poem in there. The sound of the exiles, actually, the the image on the f- cover is about the letter pay, and that's about I made that be about Passover, and it's about the the seder that's held in Lynchburg. Um, well, anyway. it's lovely. Mm-hmm. It must, and and have they have you heard what um, the rabbi uh, has? Oh, has he loved the, he book. the book, right? Yes. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm going back there to read next month. So from it, so oh, wonderful. I'm looking forward That'll to be. That. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. There seems to be these. Um, I guess with all of us, we have these cycles or, or these circles yeah. in our own lives. And how you um, you were born out west in San Francisco. You you then came to Michigan, Kalamazoo College. We right. should mention again, and then and then um, you went west to the um, to work in the Cascades. Right. Now, was that something, were you working in the national parks then, Emily? Was this, was this something where you, you, you weren't in so much in the, the Jewish faith at the moment, but you were looking to, to nature or, or right, right. Or, yeah. I mean, at that, because I didn't feel I was included in Orthodox Judaism, I needed somewhere for my passion or seeking to go. So in my twenties, I was just completely a fanatic about wilderness. So I traveled all over the way. I worked in Wyoming, California, worked at Joshua Tree, Bighorn Canyon. And that really informed your work right. at that time. Isn't Royal, that, right. The leaf so, path is really, sure, is really about the the wilderness. So worked at Owl Royal for two summers. And then I got a job at North Cascades National Park working for Forest Service and Park Service. So then I moved there. It was a permanent job. And I... I because all people work for the Park Service are pretty, are wandering. Are so, nomadic. Uh, yeah. Because I, I love the, the bull moose poem as yeah. well. And then the... The, the ne- bull moose poem is set in Isle Royale. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, yeah. That's the first poem I ever published, is it? And it's a syllabic in the... It was an imitation of Marion Moore. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it doesn't hit you hit you on top of the head syllabic. It's like right. uh, it's, right. it's it's subtle. <laughs> Did you want me to read this poem, The Daily Habit? Yeah, if you don't mind. Sure. That oh, I'd love great. to. So this poem, The Daily Habit, is um, it, this was written in nineteen like eighty one in Seattle before there were before there were any Starbucks, oh. and this was this was the name of a espresso cart. There were two in the whole city. Oh right! Is this it? this was on Broadway. Oh, that's great. I know Broadway very well, and we should, in the interest of full disclosure, we should say you've worked many jobs, not just as like in the national forest and, and being spiritual and mystical, Emily, but also Microsoft, uh, Amazon. <laughs> you know, so you've 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 definitely had your Seattle years. Yeah, right? poets have to earn a living, so. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> They, uh, Especially like the smart, smart poets can find those ways. <laughs> it's crazy, really. I don't know how it's because we aren't supported really in our country to except for, you know, it's hard to, to survive as a poet. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I guess we'll hear. Let's, okay. let's go to the daily habit. Okay, so attribute. the daily habit is, a, is about this espresso stand. I walk my morning beat. Steam blinds the cafe windows. A starling cause at the slow sun, nodding behind the city reservoir, where two cops, like shoes placed heel to toe in a box, chat in their cars. On mornings like these, I envy their quota of tickets, envy anyone with measurable work, the truck farmer with his produce, the espresso peddler, the broker with his graph of careful guesses. 
I cannot say, rinse the dirt from these green words, they will nourish you, or mark the rise and fall of these lines. Note the stable sounds that repeat, you will profit from them. I cannot even promise addiction. I was so proud of this poem. I brought it back to the espresso guy who ran the cart. I gave it to him and came back a few days later. <laughs> He didn't even read it? No. Oh, no. That's, so, that's so kind of crushing. It's, well, it's, it's ironic. I mean, that's what the poem's that's, about. So. Yes. Can, no, it, exactly. So he actually fulfilled the the poem. Um, I guess days before Vivace, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if he had you know, paid more attention to the poem, the guy would still be there. But yeah. <laughs> um, So you have new work with you, Emily. I that do you have too. new work. Uh, I'll tell you what, why don't we, why don't we take a short break mm, okay. and, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll hear some, po- some new work and, and talk a bit more. You're listening to Living Writers. Today, Emily Warren is on the program. Her book, Shadow Architect, Alex Bell Hodge on the control panel. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Mm-hmm. 